Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. If you like my show, you're going to love Under Review on Podcast One, presented by Bet Online. Get the odds, news, and insights from real industry insiders. This is not your typical schlocky pick show. Get the real trends and info with your host, Damon D. Download new episodes of Under Review, presented by Bet Online, every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. A lot going on in the world of the NBA. Second round is going strong, mostly in game two mode right now. We're going to be transferring a lot of these series to the second location, which is really exciting. And also very excited to talk with Jared Dubin. Jared Dubin, very talented writer and guest of this show does last night in basketball. He's written some cool things for 538 in the recent past. And we go through our kind of broad scope takeaways from not only these series, but also from the first round, because I haven't talked with him since then. And then we get into the offseason. He and I are both salary cap guys. So we get into kind of the big arcs of that and the decision making process, which I thought was a really fun conversation. This episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% signup bonus. Pluto TV, leading free streaming television service. It's awesome. Yahoo Daily Fantasy. You can go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and use the promo code pod25 for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. And TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. Episode runs a little bit over an hour and we cover a lot of ground during that time. So I think you'll enjoy it and talk a little bit about a lot of different franchises, both those that are still playing and those that are out now. So hope you hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I have a couple of different directions that I want to take this, but I wanted to start it out by opening it up a little bit to you and seeing where, whether you want to talk about the last couple of games where, you know, in the game one, game two mix for these second round series, or if you want to go back to the first round, some of your most notable takeaways of the playoffs so far. Um, let's go with the second round. I mean, we're, we're in the second round already. Who cares about the first round anymore? Um, the game twos last night, I thought were, were interesting sort of for different reasons. Um, obviously the Bucks changed up a lot in their defensive strategy against Boston, uh, switching one to four, putting a lot more pressure on the ball handler when Horford was the guy setting the screen. And, um, I thought especially in the third quarter, their defense was just unbelievable. I mean, they were picture perfect, with their help, picture perfect in their rotations, picture perfect doing literally everything in that third quarter, and it was really, really impressive. It was, and 
we've seen various teams, I would say the Rockets and Warriors are most notable in this group, have the intention through switching of turning their opponent into an ISO-heavy team. And Mm -hmm. the rationale there is that isolations are less efficient than a lot of other types of looks, even though there are certain players who are great isolationists. And what was surprising to me about that against Boston, and I don't think this is necessarily why Kyrie had a bad game, was that Kyrie is wonderful at isolations, and you know he's a, he can score, can, can get his shot against almost anybody. But also, I it was a reminder that Jason Tatum, as talented as and intriguing as he is, like David Locke had the stat that he's really struggled in isolations this year. He's 95th out of 95 guys with a certain level of of frequency on on isolations. And so Boston, I if you looked at it just conceptually, you would think, oh, well, that might not work as well against them. But then remember that Milwaukee has a ton of length and they have a lot of really good players. So I don't know that it will work as well if they keep moving forward. I absolutely think they should do it. But it still was huge in game two. Yeah, and I thought especially just their help defense was so good. And that's, I mean, against the isolations, even if you have good isolation scorers, which Kyrie is one of the best in the league, if they get by somebody and there's help there waiting for them, it's just so difficult to score. And I thought that was especially the case, again, in that third quarter. I mean, Kyrie got a bunch of switches even and chances to isolate. Like, he isolated on Ilyasova twice and just he couldn't get where he wanted to go because the help was just perfectly timed and perfectly placed and they were rotating behind it. And, you know, there's a reason that the Bucks were the best defensive team in the league this year. Right, and mostly switching one to four. Though there were some five involved switches at moments, I think that allowed them to retain some of the rim protection, some of the help defense that has made Milwaukee so potent. Now, that help defense is a little bit less relevant against Boston because they're not getting to the rim as as often, but I still think it does really help. It prevents some of the easiest looks, even if Boston doesn't do it all the time. Those are, you know, those could be a nice little benefit in getting to the free throw line on an individual game, even if on a macro sense, that's not necessarily where the Celtics offense is going. Right. And it, it also helped, I think, somewhat neutralize the Kyrie Horford pick and pop which had killed them uh, in game one and at the beginning of the game, I thought was really hurting them again in the first quarter and a little bit of the second. Um, they, they managed to slow it down a little bit in the second half and Boston tried to go to more, a little bit of dribble handoff action and that, that didn't particularly work either. Something that I, I think is a broad scale thing, and I'm working on this, I don't have it all the way in yet, that I've been thinking about for these playoffs, and it's been true over the last couple of years, is how teams have tried different approaches to retain rim protection even as the league gets more spaced out. And I thought one of the really fascinating touchstones of this happened in Game 2 of Sixers-Raptors when the decision, and, and Nate had floated this, and I had it was something I had thought of, but I wish I had. Nate floated it after Game 1 of putting Joel Embiid on Pascal Siakam. And so doing that, you are conceding. Some some specific things, and it is very possible that those will end up burning you. You know, Pascal Siakam getting wide open quarter threes, he's definitely more confident taking those, and in certain circumstances, giving him more of a driving lane. Not all the way to the basket, but more of a driving lane. And that has been, you know, it's not a, a totally novel strategy. Think going back to, like, I mean, it was more extreme, but the Warriors putting Andrew Bogut on Tony Allen back in 2015. And there have been a series of those, uh, Draymond on Rondo, though that had that wasn't all about rim protection. That was about help defense and some other capacities as well. And 
it is really interesting to see how that works in the modern NBA. One way is that, you know, not every team has four or five great shooters, so then you don't have to kick, kick it that way. And then another way is by driving like Ben Simmons and Giannis have and everything else. And so I think that's kind of one, I think that's one of the frontiers of where the league is going because rim protection is still important. You just have to kind of get your way to it in different ways. Yeah, and so I think that the important thing with the Sixers putting Embiid on Siakam was it allowed them to put Simmons on Kawhi, which, you know, Kawhi was still ridiculous, but for a lot of the first half, it made things much more difficult for him because they could send more help towards him to uh, to cut off his driving lanes a bit. And that, I thought, really stifled the Raptors' offense for a lot of the first half. And I think you see a similar thing with Milwaukee, where they can put, you know, there were a couple times, and Zach Lowe pointed this out on Twitter, where they put Giannis on Horford and Lopez on Morris, whether it be a switch or just they got cross-matched in transition. And both of those guys are two of the best rim protectors and help defenders in the league. And I think, you know, having one of the two of them at all times able to help near the lane just helps so much. And I mean, it tells you so much about why they were such a good defense this year. Right. And getting extreme or unconventional benefits from a from a player position where that doesn't usually happen is uh, is something that we're seeing on that that's really making the more resilient defenses. And what I'm thinking about also there is the way the Warriors have defended the Rockets. And mm-hmm. Draymond Green is the most valuable playoff defender. You know, it, 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 you know, there have been different archetypes for that over the years. You know, the man-to-man, you know, the Jordan stopper idea for, for years, that was what you could get. Or the rim protector, going back to various giant centers over time. But what Draymond has been doing in the Rocket series, which is fundamentally different, and this is not meant as a slight to Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert is amazing. He's my pick for Defensive Player of the Year. He's going to win it again. He deserves it again. But Draymond is much better than Rudy Gobert at being in two places at once. Mm-hmm. And some of that comes from just not being as massive a human being. You know, it is it is easier for Draymond Green to move. Theoretically, if there was somebody Rudy Gobert's size that was more nimble, maybe it would be possible. But Gobert achieves his dominance in a different way. And specifically against the Rockets and James Harden, you know, forcing these tough decisions for what is typically a big man or at least nominally a big man. And Green is is so well situated to handle that specific challenge that I, it, it's hard for Houston to counter because you, you built this whole thing and it works against, you know, 28, 29 other teams, no, 27, 28 other teams. And Draymond has done a really good job of mitigating and neutralizing it. Yeah, I mean, look, personnel a lot of times is the biggest advantage that you can get. And um, there's just not much you can do about the other team having Draymond Green. Like, you know, um, the, the best thing... You could, you could try, try to, to get do. him technicals, you could try to get him right. flagrant foul points, all those sorts yeah. of fun things. Um, which, to their credit, they have tried to do. Uh, he got a technical rescinded from last night. Um, but I mean, the, the, the easiest way to neutralize him is probably to figure out a way to play him off the floor on offense, but that's the one guy or the one team, like it doesn't really matter if you don't guard one of their guys because they have like all these different counters about it. And this is something I did for last night in basketball 
earlier in the season, like all the different ways that the Warriors will counter the fact that you're just not guarding Draymond. Um, and they'll do it with Bogut. They did it with Cousins. They'll do it with McKinney. They'll do it with Looney. They just have so many different ways to counteract it because they have the two best shooters of all time and the best big shooter of all time. Um, there's there's not a lot you could do when there's a player like that. There's also a reminder of that rea- that reality holding when they're with their best fives or things near that. But then I noticed still even more prevalently last night, and this is about as extreme as it gets with Houston, that when like Sean Livingston, for example, is on the floor, when you don't have that critical mass of shooters, things can get a lot harder. And so the Rockets mm-hmm. are the single most aggressive team in the NBA at not guarding players who are, who are limited threats or no threat at all on the perimeter. And so sh- they basically didn't guard Sean Livingston when Sean Livingston did not have the ball. And that made life a lot harder. And again, another thing that that works really well, but the problem when you're facing the Warriors is that they have those players in the rotation, but they're, you know, 10 minute a game type of guys as stop gaps. They're not the entire team. Right. And there's, again, I mean, it seems strange to just keep saying it, but there's not much you can do about a team that is able to situate itself like that because of the other players in the team, you know, like, um, well, and I, I think that's, I can, I can follow up on that. And I was thinking about this this morning and I was, tr- I, I'm hoping that this will articulate the way that it is in my brain, which is there are a series of teams and there's no shame in this that are wonderful regular season teams, but due to the nature of the sample of teams that make the playoffs, that the best of the best are there, and, and oftentimes at, at unusual skills, like unusually strong skill sets and positions and all that kind of stuff. Like there's a group of teams that are, are wonderful. I would say the Utah Jazz are in this group, Portland Trailblazers, and numerous others where they're really, really good. Oh, Denver is another good example, as currently constructed, where they're really good teams, but I would be very surprised if they won a championship because what they concede can be exploited by by the best of the best. And now that isn't necessarily always the Warriors, but they're teams like Houston or Toronto. Like there's, there's always going to be somebody that's that good. It's just the nature of the NBA, that there will be a team that has a collection of, of players. And there's no shame in that. Not every team can win a championship being a top seed and doing really well is great. And and I think that's important. Houston to me is not in that group. And I don't think they're, I think they're meaningfully not in that group, but this Warriors team just happens to have exactly the right or wrong, depending on your interpretation of, of events, collection of talent to make it significantly harder for Houston to get where they want to go. Yeah. And I want to go back to what you said about conceding certain things and teams being able to take advantage of that because I think that you know you, you mentioned Utah already you mentioned Portland you mentioned Denver I think Oklahoma City somewhat falls in this group at times too um it goes a lot back to the drop pick and roll coverage defense where this is something I pointed out for the past couple of years just as an example like this is why Paul George is so good against the Blazers. They're so vulnerable to players that snake pick and rolls, where they take the screen and then cross back over and come in front of the screener so that the defender is no longer in their lane. This is why Chris Paul and James Harden and Paul George, and even now Damian Lillard has gotten so much better at it. CJ McCollum is one of the best in the league at it too. This is why these guys have so much success against those particular teams. And it works really well for a lot of the regular season Um, most teams and most players are not good enough to take advantage of it. But if you get in a series against a certain kind of team, it's just not workable for the most part. 
And, um, and I think that's why you see a lot of these teams neutralize, you know, some of the best defenders in the league because they're just not equipped to deal with that style of pick and roll player. I mean, this is why Chris Paul, uh, is so good against the Jazz. And, and, you know, Rudy Gobert, he sits back, you know, three feet inside the paint and Chris Paul is just like, all right, I'll pull up from the elbow, you know? Um, and there's just not much that you can do about that. And, and James Harden will, not pull up from the elbow, but he'll look like he's going to, and then float a lot to Clint Capella, you know? And, uh, it's just, it's just really, really difficult. And it's tough to say, you know, we're going to junk the defense that served us so well, not just this year, but over the past few years. Um, but I think there's merit to it. And I think you saw, again, you saw that with, um, with Milwaukee in game two, you know, they were a drop coverage team the entire year. And suddenly they didn't do it as much in game two and it worked out really well for them. That's also, I think, why Milwaukee stands out among teams that really did the drop-back system, because they had the personnel to, to shift to other things if warranted or if necessary. They didn't need too much in the regular season because they had amazing personnel. What they took away was impressive. But having that other gear, and that gets into another kind of fascinating question of team building, which is, so you think about Portland. I think they're a good example here. Yeah, use of Nurkic being available, in, especially in this Denver series, would be a huge help. But Structurally speaking, I mean, and, and I'm not criticizing Nurkic. was was a great signing. I think the numbers that and he had this wonderful year. The injury that occurred was unforeseeable. You know, guy just breaking his leg. It it, it happens unfortunately, but it's there's not much you can do to prevent it. And their system, you know, when you're dropping back, conceding a bunch of mid rangers, as you said, like there not only are there players that can exploit it, but I I believe that the players who are best at that generally speaking, are around later in the playoffs. Like, that those... It's not necessarily because they themselves, like Chris Paul at this point in his career, oh, any team Chris Paul is on, they're going to make the conference finals. It's just that these players who are killers from mid-range and can do a lot of other stuff end up on really good teams, often because they're amazing overall players. Kevin Durant is probably the archetype here. And... So you think about what Portland system, yeah, they've gotten they've gotten worked by the Warriors a couple times in the last few years. If they had a series against Kawhi, and theoretically that could happen if Kawhi like goes to the Western Conference or something like that, I think it would be the same problem. And I don't so Milwaukee can handle that and hopefully they have enough reps to go to these other approaches when necessary. But some teams I just don't think they have the horses to make that sort of a pivot. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, you know, you look at um, what Dane said after game one against the Nuggets, like their style of defense works a lot better against Oklahoma City with Westbrook attacking them because he always wants to get to the rim than it does against Denver with, you know, Jamal Murray or Gary Harris or Jokic attacking them. Um, There are just limitations to, honestly, to most things you do. There are limitations to switching defense. Look at how well, um, you know, the the Rockets at times can attack switching defenses just because they have James Harden. You know, there are limitations to everything. And being able to shapeshift um, through different kinds of looks is really, at this point, the most valuable thing in the league. And, um, you know, Golden State can obviously do that. Milwaukee has the look of being able to do that. And I think Toronto has the look of being able to do that, too. Yeah, I would agree. Lots more to talk about with Jared, but first a message from betonline.ag. May kicks off with some great sporting events. Not only do you have the NBA and NHL playoffs, but you also have the Kentucky Derby, which is this coming weekend, series of big boxing matches, and baseball's going on too. Don't miss out on all the action at betonline.ag. Use the promo code PODCAST1 for your 50% sign-up bonus, whatever you're into, and that could be basketball playoffs getting into the second round 
NHL. BetOnline.ag is a great way to engage with it, especially if you feel like you have a read on something and in-game betting is, is a really cool way to do that, something that I've enjoyed the intellectual thought process behind and figuring out not only the challenges for for you, but for making those lines and figuring out where a game is going to go. So you can check it out. Also, they do some cool stuff there in terms of what's going on through the remainder of the playoffs. So if you think you know who's going to win the title and or you think just the team has great odds and so it's, it's worth making a play there, you can do that. And the way to check it out, you go to betonline.ag, and then you can use the podcast one code for that 50% welcome bonus. And then there's another way you can do it too. You can text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669, and you get that same welcome bonus. So whichever way you want to get there is great. Tells them that you came from us, and you can try it out. Betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Also have a message from Pluto TV, which is the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. And what I love most about it is that not only do they never ask for a credit card, that's a great first step, but you don't even need to sign up to watch for free. It is the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies for free. So what are you waiting for? You never need to pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. Even better, you can use it on all of your favorite devices today. That includes your phone, your smart TV, a PlayStation, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, really wherever else, wherever you stream, you can get Pluto TV. So check it out today. And since you brought him up, I think we could take a short digression to talk about Russell Westbrook. And you, you're a good person to talk with about this because you and I have talked about Russ for years now, both online and everything else, mm-hmm. about whether this iteration of Russell Westbrook is conducive to playoff success because of what having him in your offense asks of everybody else. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say, you know, it's not like Westbrook has had no playoff success throughout his career. You know, like the the Thunder went to the finals, obviously, back uh, in 2012. They've been to the Western Conference Finals, I think, three more times. Obviously, they have not had nearly as much playoff success since Durant went to the Warriors. But, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I know which of those three series that they played in they realistically, quote-unquote, should have won. You know, last year they were technically the higher – uh, seed in the four five matchup. Um, you know, this year they were the six against the three. The year before, I, I think they were the eight against the one, or maybe the seven against the two. Um, and obviously, didn't come away with that series. So it's not like they've been blowing series. But you know, Russ has always played sort of like tipping along the knife's edge, or whatever you want to call it. He obviously is capable of single handedly winning a game, and he's capable of you know having you in position to win the game, but then making the mistake. That sort of dooms you. It's this is none of this is to say that Westbrook isn't a good player or that any of the it's it's not like the negatives outweigh the positives with him. You know he's probably like, and I think uh, you know Simmons has talked about this a lot, calling him sort of like a ninety ten guy, where ninety percent of the stuff that he brings to the table is good, and ten percent of the stuff that he brings to the table is bad. Um, it's just that, you know, where it used to be like there was 5% of that 10% that you could live with. Now it's getting closer to not being able to live with any of that 10%. And I think that that's a lot of the difference between, you know, a team that goes out in the first round and a team that goes to the second round or the third round or whatever it is. And, um, I think he noticeably lost half a step or so this year. That's presumably going to continue to happen as someone who's had multiple knee surgeries also, um, 
I can tell you that that does happen no matter how good of an athlete you are. And granted, he will still be a better athlete than like 98% of the guys in the league. But, you know, his, you know, 95% athleticism, if that means that he's not able to get to the rim quite as often or, you know, not able to elevate over a guy uh, for a floater or not able to necessarily burn past a guy um, as cleanly as he used to, um, those are all significant problems. And, you know, you, at that point, it's not necessarily about adjusting your style of play, but adjusting your decision making within your style of play knowing that you can't necessarily do 100% of the things that you used to do and saying, okay, well, now I'm going to react a little bit differently in this situation on occasion than I might have before. Um, And I think some of that, over the past few years, the Thunder have sort of been trying to get him to develop a postgame. I think it was much better when they still had Durant than it has been over the past few years. And obviously some of that is because you got to pay attention to Durant in ways that you don't necessarily have to with some of the other guys that they have. But also I think he's gotten worse at making decisions out of the post. Um, And that's something where I think him developing a really good back to the basket game, not necessarily exclusively as a scorer, but making decisions and, and passing out of there too. I think that would be really, really, really helpful um, for both him and the team. You know, you've seen it, I think, with Sean Livingston, where if you don't have a jumper and teams just refuse to guard you on the outside, if you can develop a postgame, that's a really good way to neutralize that. And it's something that I said Michael Carter-Williams should have been doing for years because he clearly can't shoot at all. And I think it's something that Westbrook should do, you know, over the next few years as well. Ben Simmons is another prominent example. Oh, here. Yeah. And, and he's made some real growth. One of the challenges for this construction of the Sixers team, though, is that post-ups require not only a lot of, a lot of time with the ball in that player's hands, not that that is a bad thing for Ben Simmons, he's such a talented passer, but also, as a practical matter, it requires a fair amount of spacing, because mm-hmm. if it's so easy to help, and, and yeah, you maybe sometimes you'll concede an open pass, but let's say that open pass does not create something that the other team is particularly scared about, like that sort of a circumstance, then that creates a problem. The way that I would frame Russell Westbrook's current issue is I love using the term undeniability. And I think that that's that's something special. It can be in a lot of different forms in the NBA. You know, that could be a Kevin Durant pull-up jump shot where he's just so damn tall and his release point is so high. Or a Brook Lopez 3, for that, for that matter, where once they get into the motion, if you're not in their body, they're getting the shot off cleanly. And you're just up to the fates to see whether it goes in or it doesn't. Russell Westbrook was a force of will and a force of athleticism in an entirely different way, but undeniable in his own way. I mean, his MVP was well-deserved, and I think part of what we're seeing is a decrease, a modest, not a huge one, but a modest one in athleticism. But then the other part, to me, is an increase in sophistication of NBA defensive schemes, and that partially because of his own success and just also everything else, coaching staffs, personnel, all those all those different disparate elements are focusing more on taking away some of what it just so happens that Russell Westbrook brings to the table. So not only has he taken a slight step back, but I think teams are better at handling what he does. And so now he hasn't changed his mentality at all. So he's like, I can, I can do what I'm going to do. I can make these shots. I can sometimes get the basket, though he's not driving as much. 
And the success rate of the same strategy for both of those reasons has dropped pretty significantly. And I mean, you can look at it in the regular season. His So in the regular season, MVP year, he had a 55% true shooting. And that was the highest of his career that was tied with the year before. And the difference really from the year before was that he cranked up his usage rate to an incredible level. But since that 55%, 52 last year, 50 this year. And I mean, his jump shot was another story. And then the playoffs, and granted, we're dealing with small sample size theater here. 51% his MVP year, then 49 and 47 the last two. And if somebody is shooting as many shots as he does, you're putting a lot on the rest of his team to be effective because that's just, you. Can, if somebody's sh- taking that many shots and not making that many of them, it makes it so much harder for the offense to stay above water. And they have a defense that can make that happen. And Russ had some fantastic moments in transition in the Blazers series, but that just wasn't enough to sustain. I think also uh, something super notable about the um, the shooting percentage is going down so much this year to a point where, like, I think it was as bad as, like, his first couple of seasons. This was his best season finishing at the rim of his entire career. He made 65% of his shots within three feet of the basket, and he took a bunch of them, too. You know, he took um, 36% of his shots within three feet of the rim. Uh, But his floater game fell off horribly. His short mid-range game fell off horribly. His, you know, medium-length mid-range game fell off horribly. His deep mid-range game fell off horribly. Basically, every jumper, every shot that he took, except for finishing at the rim and shooting from three, fell off horribly this year. And the only reason his three-point shooting didn't fall off horribly is because it was horrible last year, too. Um, So it's just, I don't know how you, like, discover touch, but he really needs to get that back in order to be the, the same kind of effective or the same level of effective offensive player he was a couple of years ago. And um, he does so many other things that you can live with the shooting during the regular season, but it's just too difficult. Um, and I think we've seen that over the past couple of years now. It's, it's too difficult to find success against the best defenses in the playoffs when the guy that's driving your entire offense just doesn't need to be guarded um, you know, outside of the immediate area of the rim, unless that guy is an absurd athlete to the point that he seriously cannot be stopped from getting to the rim, like Russ of a few years ago or Giannis of now. I dropped this stat and it got some attention a while ago, but I, this is the updated version. I hadn't looked at it until now. Russell Westbrook on jump shots for this full year league year, 32% overall, 29% from three. So that was an effective field goal percentage of 38.2. He didn't play nearly as many minutes, but Markel Fultz, 30% jump shots, 29% from three. The difference in effective field goal percentage is that Markel Fultz took far fewer of his as threes than Russ. So he's actually meaningfully less efficient from an effective field goal percentage. But that gets into another crazy part of this for Russ. Like this season, Russ shot 29% from three and 28% of his shots were threes. That's a lot for a guy who's not making them. And also, I mean, the, the deterioration, which is so bizarre in his free throw shooting, it was he was in the 80s, career 80% free throw shooter, but was above that before now. 74% last year, 66% this year. That's just bananas for a guy who's 30. It's not like his arm broke off or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I saw a few times this year that there was a theory that it might have been something about the new rule that you can't walk past the three-point line, and he used to walk all the way back um, to the half-court line in between or before he took his free throws. Um, 
And I know that there's like a psychological thing where if you're not in your rhythm, not doing your usual thing, that it could affect you. Um, but now that's been going on for like two years, I think, you know, you, you should have a new routine by now. And maybe it's just completely thrown him off to the point that he can't get it back. Um, I know that, you know, you see him do a lot of different things during games that make it seem like he's a superstitious guy. Like whenever the Thunder win the tip, he will do like a sort of fancy thing of receiving the ball somehow. Um, you know, for example, last year, like Melo would get the tip and then like pass it back to Russ between his legs or things like that. Now they do like a different thing. Actually, in one game this year, Donovan Mitchell sort of anticipated Russ fancily receiving the ball and snaked in front of him to get the ball before he could do his thing. Um, so maybe he's just such a creature of superstition and habit that breaking that routine really has just thrown him off forever. That could be a small part of it. I, I, it's, it just seems to me like that would be so extreme for somebody as talented like as these guys for that to basically kind of give them the yips, you know, kind of a version like that. It's possible. Well, what though. gave Markel Fultz the yips? We don't even know. <laughs> That's you know? a great point. Um, oh, another weird thing about this season, we've seen multiple players have the thoracic outlet surgery for other reasons. Uh, Brandon Ingram was the DVT, Kyle Anderson for his shoulder, and Markel Fultz, who has, well, at least publicly, it sounds like he has thoracic outlet syndrome, has not had the surgery. Now, you know, surgeries can be done for a variety of purposes. I'm not saying I don't have enough information to say that that was a mistake for Fultz or anything else. I just found it interesting. I suppose it is interesting on a certain level. I mean, who knows what's going to happen. We don't have to talk about Markel Fultz, right? The Magic are out of the playoffs. He no, wasn't really we, we, part we of the Magic well, anyway. We don't have to talk about Marco Fultz, but actually I do want to talk about the Magic. And that is because you and I are both salary cap guys and, you know, both have both at one time were heavily involved in middle-level exceptional. I My off-season preview of the Magic went in some dark places. And the reason why is because this is exactly the type of situation that some front offices get really wrong, that they see, you know, they see a team that exceeds expectations, that has a, a real feel-good year. Steve Clifford, I think, did a wonderful job there. A lot of players showed some real growth. And the challenge comes because veteran players who were important to their success have career years, and that just so happens to be when they hit free agency. And then later on, the young players who are also part not only of their current success, but where this team is going, and I'm focusing primarily here on John Isaac, those guys are going to get the raises later. So what concerns me is if they go head over heels for, let's say, Vooch, and give him a lot of money, That's I think that's going to look worse with time, and that will look worse when Aaron Gordon's looking for a new contract, when John Isaac is looking for a new contract, and I worry that they might overcommit to a team that isn't really worth that. It's not like the Magic haven't done it before. And, you know, this is the, I mean, what was it, the 2013 Suns or 2014 Suns? Um, whichever version that was, you know, they unexpectedly won 48 games when they were trying to tank. And then all of a sudden they're like, you know what, we're going we're gonna to try to still be good. And the, the reasons they were good um, didn't stick around longer than that one season. Uh, it didn't help that they tried to have like 17 point guards on the same thing on the same team. And none of them was happy about it, um, and they wound up keeping none of them essentially. <laughs> but by the by, last year they had gotten rid of all three and gotten you know almost nothing in return for for Dragic, Isaiah, um, and then Bledsoe. Um, but you know that's the Suns for you. And uh, if the the model of something is the Suns, you probably shouldn't follow it. 
let's talk a little bit about about this offseason. So much space running around, and depending on where you're, how you're divvying it up, not enough max players to justify all that. But what I think makes this year different, I mean, there are a couple of reasons. One is the the sheer volume of quality free agents. I mean, there are a lot of really good guys out there that can choose. Almost all of them can choose to go back to their current location, which is a very good situation, or go somewhere else. But also, because just so many players chose to hit free agency this year, some of the prioritization and resource allocation this year is absolutely fascinating because... Yeah, it's probably unlikely. Let's say, let's use the Utah Jazz or the Indiana Pacers. Both those teams could bring back their current teams, or they could use cap space. And then, if they use cap space, they could go in a couple different directions. And teams in that circumstance are always partially dependent on who says yes, who's interested. And it just so happens that both of them, both those franchises, have not really been free agent destinations in terms of bringing in new guys over the years. But what they prioritize, who, maybe they go start a li- little bit lower in the pecking order at the beginning of free agency. I wonder what they're going to do. I'm very curious about what they're going to do specifically in regards to if they try to jump ahead of the market because there are so many teams that are going to be waiting for the you know Durant, Kyrie, Kawhi, Jimmy Butler, Kemba Walkers of the world. You know, will the Jazz and Pacers specifically? try to get out ahead of it and say, you know what, we're going to try to sign Tobias Harris before the Sixers know what's happening uh, with, with Jimmy Butler or whoever else. So we're going to try to sign them before like somebody can use one of them as their fallback option if they don't get the top guys. And how that plays into the offseason plans like of literally everybody else. And also, like, are those top guys going to take a super long time? You know, people thought LeBron was going to take a while last year, and then he announced it like in the middle of the day on the first day that you know, that players could sign. Um, so all of these things are sort of interconnected, um, and I don't know how that's necessarily going to shake out. Still more to talk about with Jared Dubin, but first a message from Yahoo Daily Fantasy. It is one of the best times of year to be a sports fan. NBA, NHL playoffs are in full swing, and on top of that, Major League Baseball and golf are just starting to pick up. If you want to get closer to the action, Yahoo Daily Fantasy is for you. Yahoo Daily Fantasy offers single-day and week-long contests you can pick a new team every day, and they have the lowest management fees across the industry. Do not play with other sites that charge high fees just to play. Yahoo's lower fees means more prizes for you, the players, to win. To get started, go to yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy, find a contest that's right for you, and use the promo code POD25 for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. You can try a 50-50 contest where the top half of the field wins or Yahoo's innovative quick match feature where they will pair you with another player of your skill level and you can do a quick match contest for free or for cash and there is no management fee, which means that you can keep 100% of your winnings or you can play for larger prizes and bigger bragging rights in guaranteed prize pool contests. Again, use that promo code POD25 for $25 in free play by going to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy to start playing today. Also have a message from TrueCard. 60 seconds. That is exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with TrueCar. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, 
pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a true cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number, watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you will get an accurate true cash offer from a local True Car certified dealer. It is that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they will check it out with you together. You can ask questions, get the answers you need so there are no surprises. Then, simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. You framed it from, from well, actually you did it from both, but from the team perspective, it's it's interesting. And, you know, can you go after somebody early on? But I also think the player perspective here is important. Can a player say, I don't want to wait. I want to just lock in the money when I can. Maybe theoretically there could be more later on, but also I could be left standing when the music stops and the teams that have money just aren't as interested in me. And who goes in which direction is is also really compelling because these players are interacting with each other. They have a lot more information than we do, both from their agents and from themselves. And so Kemba Walker is a good little capstone of this idea because Kemba, maybe he's super connected with KD and and they said like, hey, what's... You know, if, if, if I'm going to New York and Kyrie doesn't come, would you want to play for us? Or maybe Kemba's just flying a little bit blind. You know, he's playing in Charlotte. None of the other stars in the league are playing with him there. And those gaming out those sorts of things, like, it's not always as, especially in hindsight, obvious as the LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh stuff was back in 2010. But these interpersonal relationships matter a lot too. And so who says... I'm just going to go for it and and sign my contract now, and then who decides to wait and see see who has space and kind of play th- play it out. And along those lines, I think the most compelling guy I called him the kingmaker, basically right after Anthony Davis made his trade demand is Kyrie Irving. And the reason why it's Kyrie Irving is because what he... supposedly everybody wants to play with him. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, oh yeah, because because it's it's it sounds like it's so much fun to be his teammate. On the court, I mean, he's an amazing player, and and I think his his contributions to Cleveland's success in the finals may actually be underappreciated. I mean, LeBron was incandescent, but Kyrie was amazing too. But more before you continue, sure. great usage of incandescent right there. I appreciate that, sir. Thank you. And <laughs> so and so Kyrie, the reason why he matters more to me than anybody else is because of Anthony Davis. Because what mm-hmm. Kyrie tells Danny Ainge about his willingness to come back can, should, and will affect what Ainge offers David Griffin and the Pelicans for Anthony Davis. If Kyrie says on June 15th, I'm not coming back under any circumstances, the Celtics are in a very different place. And they might still get Anthony Davis. He's so good that they might say, hey, we can still trade for him. Their asset base is ridiculous. They could still, even at a reduced offer, have the best offer possible. It's also theoretically possible that Kyrie says, the only way I'm staying is if Anthony Davis is here. Like, if you've had, they wouldn't have to have necessarily consummated the deal, but that the deal is in place by the time July 1st rolls around. And that's entirely possible, too. And it could be in the middle ground. He could tell them nothing. But that's why I think he's the most important, because there are those direct ripple effects and because I expected Davis trade to be negotiated on or before draft night, because that's just it's just an easier way to use assets, because after the draft, you get into like three different flavors of uncertainty. So I expect a deal to be done then. So that means the Celtics need to know what they're doing with them. 
Yeah, so I think um, two things are important here. First, um, if if Kyrie says I'm coming back, then you know Boston will make its best offer for Anthony Davis. How does that affect Durant's decision? You know, was he only going to leave if he could go play with Kyrie, and does he stay? Um, and then suddenly, if Kyrie says I'm leaving, I think we can pretty much expect him and Durant to go to the same place. And where is that? And how, how does that affect everybody else and where they're able to go? Um, and then, you know, whichever team that thinks they're getting those guys, how do they react if they don't? You know, does that team then pivot to Kemba Walker and Jimmy Butler? Do they become a dumping ground for other teams' bad contracts to extort draft picks or something or some other kinds of assets? Um, you know, if it's, you know, the Knicks are putting out basically signals that they think they're getting these guys um, and being like not all that cryptic about about talking about it. Um, but they've also sort of been back channel leaking if they don't get essentially Durant, Kyrie or Kawhi, that they're just going to run it back with the young guys and whoever they draft and do the Nets thing from the past couple of years where they take on bad contracts in exchange for assets. Like, will they actually stick to that? That's not something the Knicks have ever actually done before. Um, it would be the smart thing to do, but we haven't been able to count on the Knicks to do the smart thing over the years. If they do get those guys and say the Clippers don't get them, what's their path going to be? You know, it's, it's so many different variables come up based on the decision-making of like three guys. And that leads into the threshold test for some of these, which uh, you brought that up with Jimmy Butler, Chris Middleton, players of uh, Tobias Harris could be this, depending on what happens with the Sixers, of teams like the Clippers. They can spend money in 2019. They can spend money in 2020. There aren't as many circumstances this year where, from a structural perspective, the money is burning a hole in their pocket. I mean, a great example of that would be the Washington Wizards back in 2016, where they were had this money and then eventually it was going to evaporate because Bradley Beal and John Wall John were going Wall. to get raises. And they did get raises. And so, and they ended up being like, well, crap, we have to spend it on somebody. Al Horford decided to go to Boston. Think about all the ripple effects of that. Like, that apparently was a pretty close decision for him. And, yeah, and he, Oklahoma City, too, right? Yes. Like he was going to go there if Durant was staying with. Yeah. Right. And yeah, then they were working out structures, structures for that. And so in that circumstance, I think it's a lot. By the way, so that team would have had Westbrook, Oladipo, Durant, Horford and Adams, I guess. I guess. That would have been pretty ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Another another wonderful what if involving that Thunder team. There are a whole a whole slew of them. But so you getting back to the kind of the the threshold question. So. The Clippers are probably the best example here. So the Clippers can spend in 19 or 20. It's not burning a hole in their pocket. This isn't a use it or lose it spending summer for them. But next year's free agent class is pretty awful. And unless really good guys take a one plus one and we expect them to leave, like, I, like let's say, you know, that because that's something very different from signing a one plus one, but it's just as a stru- mechanism to get something else in the future. Like LeBron did in Cleveland, like that first year LeBron signed a one plus one. Nobody expected him to leave that next year, though it did give him some leverage on the franchise. And so, outside of those type of players, looking at 2020, you're seeing more. I mean, AD is the big question mark. We don't know what he's what his circumstance is going to be. But after you get past him, it's Draymond at age 30, maybe Drummond if he opts out. Like that, it's it's more like Mike, Mike Conley at thirty two. Like that's really the level. Like that's the next group of free agents because restricted guys. There could be good some good restricted guys, but they're not leaving. Like that's just the way restricted free agency works. So maybe so. There's an argument to be made that's like, oh, is 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 it worth it to give Tobias Harris a bunch of money if you're? Well, I mean, not the Clippers. That's a whole different kettle fish. It'd be hilarious if you resigned there. But I don't think that's gonna <laughs> happen. 
but where that line is because the opportunity cost of spending isn't as severe if the class that is following up on it isn't that good. Right. And I think that the Clippers and Knicks are sort of in analogous situations where they have all this money. They don't necessarily have to spend it right now. They should be able to pivot into another plan. But the Clippers can do it by re-signing better guys because they were a better team. And the Knicks would have to do it by you know, re-signing bad players or going out and signing more bad players for one year. Um, and that, I think, will obviously affect the way the two teams react if they don't get the guys that they're targeting, even though pretty much everybody seems to think that the Clippers are going to get one specific guy and the Knicks are going to get one or two specific guys. Um, if they don't, that's obviously something to watch. And that plays into, you know, if those, if one or both of those teams don't get those guys, does that mean the Lakers or Nets get them? Does that mean some other random team we're not thinking of gets them? Like, or do, they so just resi- or do they just resign with their current teams? And then that, that essentially takes a player off the board but doesn't take the money off the board. So then does somebody else get horrendously overpaid on the logic of, hey, we have this money? Right. And the challenge for the Clippers, I wrote about this a little bit. My offseason preview of them came up came out for the Athletic earlier this week. The the pending free agents that they have wield some power here as well and, and face some real challenging choices because Patrick Beverly is a good, a good example here. Patrick Beverly will be 30 this offseason. And the Clippers, if he's coming back, if they have this the ability with bird rights to re-sign him, they're not going to want to give him more than a one-year contract because they're going to want to roll these dice again. And so Beverly has to decide if waiting, because presumably the Clippers, you know, unless their guys happen to decide first and say no first, that he's not going to know if they're going to have anything to offer or even what the Clippers would offer would be particularly good if what he values is money. Now, if it's situation, the Clippers can offer some pretty great stuff there. And so I think that's what's a little bit different for them is Beverly in particular, but a lot of their kind of intriguing rotation players that are hitting free agency, what are they going to do? And then that's different from their situation with Gallinari because Gallinari, the Clippers have control. He's under he's under contract now. So they can say, if we need more cap space, we, we should try to have a team in mind and, and largely have a deal figured out because that's a lot harder to do in the moment than it is. But it might, it might just not be practically possible to have a team say on June 30th, oh yeah, we're definitely going to have $22 million for, for Danilo Gallinari. You can, you can count on us. So I, I wonder how Lawrence Frank in this front office is going to navigate needing the so many contingency plans, almost all of which are dependent on other people's decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also with Beverly specifically, um, even if he wants to sign early, first of all, the Clippers probably aren't going to want to do that. And then is any other team out there really going to be prioritizing Beverly early in free agency? You know, it might not be up to him if he wants to leave the Clippers on July 2nd. You know, there, there might not be any team willing to do that because they might want to wait for somebody else too. Um, so much of this is, again, so much of the decision making hinges on the speed with which a small group of players and teams make their decisions. And that's, you know, a ripple effect, obviously, across the rest of the league. And not only the speed with which they make their decisions, but also what information before that announcement filters through different teams. Like when it, when a team is off of a player's list, when whether that's not getting a meeting or just hey, sorry, you're not you're not in the final two or whatever. That's really important too because the players have the right, and I encourage them to prioritize whatever they want, whether that's winning, money, where they where they're going to live, 
kids going to school, whatever it is. They can prioritize whatever they want. But teams are largely, especially with max players, because there isn't as much variance in the contracts, they're largely dependent on that. And that's why it's so much fun to see, like, Kawhi is a great example here. He has never had that opportunity before. Kemba Walker has never had that opportunity before. So I imagine, not only because of the, this is an old thing about like the guys, and both those guys did go to college, but the guys who never went to college wanting to get recruited and all that, like LeBron, that whole first time where he wanted to take all those meetings, but it could just be that they, that they really need to think this through in a different way because they've never had the opportunity. Yeah, I think that plays into KD too, um, who has been obviously very open about not necessarily enjoying the recruiting hysteria type coverage. And um, has nevertheless signed one plus ones each of the last three years. Um, so I sort of expect him wherever he goes to just take the full four-year max this time around, just like LeBron did last year, so that it sort of puts off the um, the speculation about where he's going to go and if he wants to stay there and how happy he is um, for at least a few more years. What Durant needs to reconcile himself, and LeBron dealt with the same thing, is that there's also a massive difference in power wielded by the player, even if it's not super credible that they're going to leave, by being under contract for that long. And I'm sure the Lakers are still, you know, I don't think that has changed their mentality of like, oh, we need to push. But I do think that it was indicative of that LeBron knew he was sticking there for the long haul. And so if it didn't work out immediately, he wasn't going to... I'm not going to say he wasn't going to agitate, but that it wouldn't be as aggressive as maybe other points would be. And I think this all goes back. I think a lot about that Rick, that Rich Paul conversation that uh, I, I still am kind of befuddled that we have video of that about the like would you, losing 10 games in Philly, losing 10 games in Cleveland, losing 10 games in L.A. And again, players can prioritize whatever they want. And so I'm sure there are people who will impute a lot on that, that like basically it's okay that the Lakers are losing for LeBron. I vehemently disagree with that. But I do think that he is more okay with it there and understood that that was a possibility because remember, LeBron committed early in July to the Lakers and they didn't have anybody else. Like he committed to a team full of young dudes and cap space. And they ended up misusing that cap space and keeping all the young dudes. So... No, I'm pretty sure that they used it correctly. I heard um, during a summer league game, you know, if you watch the playoffs last year, all, all the teams with shooting lost. So the right move was to go out and get tough guys um, and play LeBron off the ball because he's historically been very willing to do that. I'm trying to think of a roller coaster <laughs> ride quite like Magic Johnson impromptu resigning from the Lakers without telling Jeannie Buss and everybody else in the organization and go and my one of my first thoughts was oh well now they can get they can get somebody much better than Magic Johnson to do this job and and Magic is in an unusual circumstance where being running an NBA team is not the best thing he can do and that's pretty awesome you know like that's an amazing circumstance and so I'm sitting there going there are people who would do that the, the, the the Lakers have so much money. They have ridiculous resources in terms of spending out the rest of their staffing, whatever other departments, injury management, all that sort of stuff. So you have that. And it's just like this, yeah, it's a, it's a embarrassment for the franchise and everything else. But you can kind of write some of that off as magic being magic. However, they so they go from that universe of possibilities to Rob Palenka is running the coaching search. Ty Lue is being interviewed by this contingent of people who either are not particularly good at their job, 
have their job because of family connection, personal connections, or both. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, no. Yeah, if, uh, if Kurt Rambis is heavily involved in deciding who the coach should be, I think your process probably needs a little bit of work. And it's hard because so much power is wielded by a small group of individuals. And I talked before about how players have agency and they can prioritize whatever they want. The reason I say ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in the NBA is because teams can succeed in spite of their owner, but it feels like it's almost always fleeting. And teams can fail because of their owner, and that can be more consistent. And that isn't to say that a bad owner necessarily dooms a franchise permanently, but it's hard to have sustained success. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to argue with that, given you know how the the league has played out over the past ever. You know, um, I don't think you can reasonably say you're fine with a bad owner. And, uh, you know, a bad owner can be described in a variety of ways, whether they're too meddlesome or too cheap or too uh, trusting of the wrong people or some combination of all of them or some other sorts of things. You know, if they're just a very bad person and that limits, um, you know, the, the things that they could do um, for like, you know, for a Donald Sterling, for example, um, who, you know, was sort of virulent, virulently, right? That's the right word. Um, virulently uh, racist, um, you know, based on, you know, a lot of actions and things that he said um, and was also cheap and was also meddlesome and also trusted the wrong people to steer the franchise. You know, there's there's a whole lot of different ways you could be a bad owner and there are very few that you could be um, a good owner. And it's mostly just empowering the right people to make decisions and staying out of their way and providing you know, the um, the money that allows them to do what they think is necessary. And that's basically the only way to be a good owner. And I think the Clippers are an incredible demonstration of this because they went from Donald Sterling, one of the worst owners in North American professional sports history, to Steve Ballmer. But Ballmer needed some time to figure it out. Now, Ballmer had a few of the positive elements immediately. He was willing to spend. He was enthusiastic. But early on... I think he put his he put his faith in the wrong people. You know, he thought that Doc Rivers and Doc Rivers is a spectacular coach. And if for whatever reason at the time, what it took to keep him as a coach was to make him the GM, that arguably might be worth it for how good for how good he is, especially because they were able to take the power away and not lose him as the coach. But now they have this really great front office that's getting a lot of praise. They've been able to maintain in a, a consistency of vision and succeed off of that in both the immediate while setting up the long term and we've seen bad owners you you know this better than i but we i mean that bad owners can even hurt you significantly in a major market that i some people talk about oh it's all about the market size it's like the knicks are a pretty great example that it isn't all market size and we've seen teams in smaller ones and it's not necessarily only because your team draft tim drafts tim duncan like yeah that helps helps a lot or or everything else but it can make a massive difference, and I'm excited to see if the Clippers really can reap the rewards of that adjustment that they've gone through, the transformation, not only since Ballmer took over, but really over the last couple of years as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a learning curve, I think, for owners, just like there is for coaches or general managers. Um, you know, some people pick up on the learning curve more quickly than others. Some never pick up on it. Some um, are still sort of trying to pick up on it. You know, it's um, 
these things don't necessarily happen right away or in the right way right away. Um, and, you know, that's why it's a competitive advantage because it takes different amounts of time for different teams. And one free piece of advice to owners, a basic question that you should be asking all of the time is, why should I be putting my faith in this person? There are a slew of reasons why that can be the case. It could be they have a great track record, whether that's with you or with somebody else. Maybe they are really good at evaluating and trusting, empowering people below them. And so that gives them the input to make a good output, to make a good decision. But when you have somebody, when you hire somebody, especially like, let's say, the Lakers at Plank ends up getting this job, where there isn't really a good positive case, an affirmative case for that individual to have one of these 30 key decision-maker jobs, then it's time to look inward and say, how did we get to this point and how can we get out of it? Yeah, I mean, it, it helps to not be hiring a person to do a job that they have no demonstrated success at or one that is much different um, than the job they previously held. Like, just as an example, you know, an assist, a longtime assistant GM hasn't done the actual job of GM, but they have experience doing a job like that. And, you know, it's, it's a step up, and certainly there's not the track record that you might like, but at least they have the skill set required because they have been doing a very similar job or helping somebody else do that job. Hiring a coach to be your GM is much different. They don't have the necessary skill set or experience and might not even know what the job actually entails. Hiring an agent to be your general manager is the same thing. And just because it worked with Bob Myers doesn't mean it's going to work with Rob Palenka. You know, um, you got to be cognizant of what skill sets people actually have um, and how they align with the skill set required for the job you're hiring them for. And along those lines, if there, if you are a desirable, on its merits, place to be, and talented people at a, at a spot of need are not interested in you, you should think about something else. And like, so David Griffin, for me, taking the New Orleans job, and Gail Benson, it looks like she's really putting this together, the, the reporting about the, him bolstering their medical staff by getting Aaron Nelson, from, Aaron Nelson yeah. from the Stuns, that is absolutely massive. And a great sign for ownership, obviously for David Griffin as well, but we, we knew David Griffin, we were pretty damn sure he was good at his job. And so if I'm GD Buss, I'm saying they're going, well, crap, like, why couldn't that have been us? And maybe that's, and, and if you're not, if the reason you're not in the mix for him is because you don't think you have an opening, that's a problem too. Yeah, I mean, that, that certainly makes sense. And I mean, and also, you know, David Griffin was, you know, reportedly coming to interview with the Knicks a couple of years ago. And wound up saying, you know, no thanks, because Steve Mills sort of asserted himself in the position of power. Um, they wound up getting Scott Perry instead, who it seems like is doing, you know, at least an all right job so far. But I think that that sort of told them um, that they needed to be doing things a little bit differently, too. And it shouldn't necessarily just be Mills running the show. They needed somebody else um, in there with him. Um, and the, I think to their credit, they pivoted and got a guy who was very respected. Um, and we'll see if the, the plan the two of them have put together works out this summer, but at least they've gone, um, you know, in a far different direction than they have in the past. And that's more than you can say about a lot of previous Nick teams, at least. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, anything else that you want to discuss? I mean, playoffs, off season, wherever I'm giving you an open platform. <laughs> um, I don't know that I have too much necessarily. I mean, Oh, I have one for um, you. 
How much of what we saw in game one of Nuggets Blazers do you think is going to continue? That's exactly what I was going to say because it's the only game on tonight. Um, I do think that Portland um, is going to have a lot of trouble dealing with Jokic. Uh, I don't really see you know, a reasonable path toward Ennis Cantor being able to deal with him or even Myers Leonard being able to deal with him. You know, a lot of it might depend on, like, can Zach Collins handle the job for a much more extended period of time um, than he is usually able to play? Um, But what does that do to their offense? Because he just hasn't been, you know, the kind of offensive force in the playoffs that Ennis Cantor has been. Um, I I think it's going to be really difficult for them defensively to deal with Jokic, and I'm just not sure how they come back from that. And, you know, circling back to what we said basically like an hour ago now, Damian Lillard made that exact point. Like it's, it's far different for them to deal with, you know, Westbrook and Adams than it is to deal with Jokic and Murray just because of the combination of shooting and playmaking that they bring that the Thunder guys don't. Also, not as many places to help off of. You know, like the, the safety valves aren't really there for a defense, the the blankets. And that's a, a problem for Portland too. And they're going to, I think the guy who really needs to step up is Alfred Camino. He got worked in game one, and he's a better player than that. Millsap is a tough matchup, but he made some silly mistakes on offense, and I think he can be more reliable defensively than he was. And he can be, the answer might be, well, they can't really stop Jokic, but they can do enough to slow down everybody else. They just didn't do that at all in game one. I also think, um, you know, it's important. The the Thunder tried at times to put uh, McCollum, or sorry, to put Terrence Ferguson on either McCollum or Lillard, and he was not able to overwhelm them with size and strength in the way that Drew Holiday and Rajon Rondo did last year. Some of that is because Dame is just a lot better, and some of that is because while Ferguson is very long, he's not all that strong just yet. Um, in Game 1, the Nuggets had Torrey Craig on Lillard for a decent amount of time, and he is taller, stronger, and longer than Ferguson, and I thought he did a really good job in Game 1. He sort of changed uh, the series in the first round, too, once he started guarding DeRozan. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how they combat having all that size on Dane. You know, in game one, they tried to give him a lot of double screens, and I think that that second screen just allowed Craig time to recover to Dame before he was really attacking. I think if they start going with a couple more single screens this time around, you know, sort of counterintuitively, uh, that might give him a little bit more room to operate. Yeah, it's going to be a really important part of this series. And I mean, something that, that comes up is, I mean, we for, fortunately for entertainment's sake, we already have two 1-1 series. But when a, a series goes 2-0, really whichever team takes the lead, remember that the, the team that's down has to win four out of five remaining games. And even if you have a talent advantage, that's a lot to ask. And so for Portland, if they lose this game too... They have such a steep hill to climb, even if they are capable of climbing it. Yeah, and, and even going back home, obviously, for games three and four, it's it's still so difficult. I mean, I don't know what the the winning percentage rate is of teams that go down like that, but it can't be all that good, um, even if you're the team that's going home for those games. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read him all over the place. You can check out Last Night in Basketball, which is on Patreon. You can find the full link on his Twitter page and follow him on Twitter. 
at J-A-Dubin5, J-A-D-U-B-I-N, then the number five. Really enjoy talking with him and the seamlessness with which he can go between the postseason and the offseason and everything else is is very useful for my purposes because it's kind of the way my brain works too. So that's part of the reason we've gotten along well for a, for years now. And I'm excited to see how these playoffs change the way that I'm thinking about where the league is going. Not so much in terms of personnel, though that's clearly there as well, but like the conversation we had about big men and rim protection and trying to get get guys away from the rim, all those sorts of things. I'm really interested in how those play out. And we have so many really great teams in this league that are working on the same problems. And we're still learning the answers. This isn't something where it's apparent we're just not seeing it all the way yet. I think it's still evolving at this point. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player you're choosing. You can also subscribe, download every episode. That's really useful for us because the show comes out different times each week because it depends on my availability, depends on guest availability, and that's just the way it's always going to be. You can also use word of mouth to people like a specific episode, or if you tell somebody, hey, this is a great podcast, that, that stuff does really matter. And even though the show has been around a long time, there are plenty of people who don't know about it. And so any referrals are deeply appreciated. And the most important thing with this show and any other one that has them is to check out our sponsors, betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus, which is fantastic. Pluto TV, leading free streaming television service. Yahoo Daily Fantasy, yahoo.com slash daily fantasy. Use that pod 25 promo code for a $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. And TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. I do not have a lot of time for responses now. Lots going on, as you could guess. And I do read everything, though. That's extremely important to me. If you take the time to write it, I will read it. It will make an impact. And that can be you like a guest. You don't like a guest. You want me to talk more about X. And just because I listen doesn't mean that I take every suggestion and incorporate it. But the ones that are good, the ones that and it gives me something to think about, it also gives me a calibrator for what people want to listen to. And it's an extremely important part of this show and everything else that I do. You can also check out my work. Nate and I are doing Dunked On five times a week, mix of in-depth playoff analysis, but also getting really into the off-season stuff. So we are doing our position off-season previews now. Those will bleed into team-specific stuff and draft analysis, which I'm going to get started on probably next week, depending on how these series go. And that's always fun. And then my written work at The Athletic is largely along those same lines. I'm doing off-season previews for all 30 teams more than halfway through now, and we'll do the top five lottery teams and then everybody else as they get eliminated over the next few weeks and month and a half, I guess. And whatever else, like now I'm going to get a little bit more flexibility to write about other things. And then I do also, Report Card is the name of it, but it's really just a vessel for me to go into analysis. I did eight, I think it's 1900 words on game two of Rockets Warriors. So you can check that out as well. And we'll be back next week. I don't know exactly where the episode will go. My instinct is that the second round will dictate it and I'll see where the stories are and, and run from that direction, but we'll see. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank mm-hmm. you.